What kind of of risk taker are you? Are you a uh, are you Olympics or X Games? Are you giant slalom or the bunny hill? Are you skydiving or are you jump off the three meter swimming pool diving board? Are you a a bungee cord jump off a bridge kind of rich risk taker? Or are you, let's see how things play out before we make a decision kind of risk taker? Do you tend to set your sights high and then deal with the potential disappointment down the road? Or do you set your sights low so that uh, if things don't turn out, you're not all that disappointed? We, we all approach life from different kinds of risk-taking perspectives. And we all approach God and we all approach our relationship with God from different kinds of risk-taking perspectives. All of us, whatever kinds of risks we think we may take, all of us in one way or another, though, tend to gravitate toward that which is common and known and safe and comfortable, particularly in our relationship with God. And that makes the coming of Christ into our lives sort of an interesting dilemma for us. Because all you have to do is read the scriptures a little bit. And you discover that the coming of Christ always brings the miraculous to us. And sometimes when God moves mysteriously and miraculously, we don't respond all that well. He shakes up our world and we'd rather not have it shaken up. And what we need to realize is that this can be a struggle for even the most spiritual among us. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as upright in the sight of God. They observe all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Luke is telling us these are model believers. They're people wholly committed to God, to his law, to his ethical standards, to his requirements. There are only a handful of people in Scripture who are described like this. David, Job, Joseph of Arimathea, a few people in the Psalms. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the cream of the crop in God's kingdom. Think of the most godly, righteous, Christ-like person you've ever known. That's Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as the story in Luke unfolds, we find that they are God's people doing God's thing right where you would expect them to be. Now, it's not surprising that, that Zechariah's first response to the angel is fear. He's gone into this part of the temple where he is completely by himself. He knows he's by himself. No one else is there. You know how that is. You're in a place where you know no one else is around. You let your guard down. You know, it's in those moments that, that you might sing when you wouldn't otherwise sing. 
or or you might you know you might dance a little jig or something if you get excited or or, or talk to yourself when you know no one else is around. And then all of a sudden, someone appears and it scares you to death. I remember when my, my younger sister was, I don't know, six, seven, maybe eight years old. We had an evangelist that came to our church. And this guest preacher was staying in, in the basement room we had there. And, and uh, down in that room, there was a big desk. It was all enclosed except for kind of an opening underneath where you could put your legs. He'd gone upstairs for something and a few moments later came down. And what he didn't know is that my little sister had climbed under, crawled underneath that desk and hidden. And he came down and, and, and he sat at the desk and began to work. And she waited just a few moments and then she grabbed his leg. <laughs> he jumped up, as you can imagine, from that chair. It's a little girl, you about gave me a heart attack. You know, when you're deep in thought, you're concentrating. Someone speaks to you, taps you on the shoulder. You about jump out of your skin. And here's Zechariah in this place by himself. He's concentrating about what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, this being appears. And, and it sort of looks human and sort of not. And it sort of looks like it's from this world and sort of not from this world. And when you're in a situation like that, you can understand why he's afraid. You get in those situations and your blood pressure begins to rise, your pulse races and your, your heart is, is pounding and your mind is whirling. Of course, Zechariah is afraid. In fact, you read through the scriptures, everyone who encounters the angel of the Lord is afraid. It's the most natural response in the world. And the fear that he has in this setting is not the problem. The problem is his response to what the angel tells him. The angel says, Zechariah, you and Elizabeth have been praying for a child for a long time. You've had some close calls. You've been disappointed. You've lived the ups and the downs of this roller coaster of your dreams and desires. Zechariah, I am here to tell you that God has answered your prayer. He's going to give you a child. And this is going to be some baby. Because of this child, the wayward people of Israel are going to come back to God. This child's message will restore broken relationships and restore people to God. This child will be Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. This is the kind of child for which every righteous follower of God dreams. I mean, this is St. Francis. This is Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards. This is William Booth, Oswald Chambers, Willard J. Houghton. This is Billy Graham, John Stott, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, Rob Bell. This is a dream child of every follower of God. And God comes to you and he says... You've been praying a long time. Your prayers have been answered. Isn't that exactly what we want to hear? Isn't that what we want God to say? And when we hear it, we shout and we leap for joy. We're so excited. And when Christ comes to our world and to our lives, he comes to do phenomenal things like that. 
He comes to us and he says, I want to fill your, your life with such joy you can't even begin to imagine. I want you to wake up every morning overwhelmed with a peace of mind and heart. I want you to live free of worry and anxiety about all the stuff of this world and of your life. I want you to be so fulfilled, you couldn't imagine anything more. I want to bless you in more ways than you even realize exist. And I can just see this angel beaming from ear to ear. I mean, I don't know, but I suspect the angels love to declare God's good news. And the angel's just waiting for for this old man to leap for joy. He can't wait for Zechariah to to praise God and to rush out and to tell Elizabeth and the people, we're going to have a baby. Can you believe it? We're going to have a baby. God has promised. And that baby is going to turn Israel on its ear. But it isn't exactly Zechariah's response. You know, when I ponder Zechariah's hesitancy, I can't help but think about us. Sometimes our hesitancy in responding to God's about our desire to control God. I suspect in our own, maybe more sophisticated ways, maybe we aren't all that different from the little boy who was writing a letter to God about the Christmas presents he wanted so badly. You have to give him credit. At least he was writing the letter to God and not to Santa Claus. But he wrote, I've been good for six months now. Thought about that a moment, scratched out the six and wrote three. Thought about that a little bit and decided to cross that out and put two weeks. He thought about that a little bit and crossed it out. After just a moment's hesitation, he got up from the table and went over to the little nativity set that they had. And he he took Mary out of the nativity set and brought her back and sat her on the table where he was writing. And he began his letter again. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again. You know, we're always trying to control God. We're always trying to control life, to manipulate him, to cajole cajole him, to plead with him, and to get him to do what we want. And we go to great lengths to do that. We do that with life and with the church and with the way God works and with what God can and cannot do and the way God chooses to do it. And we come to believe that, that God can only speak through maybe a certain type of music or through a certain style of worship or through a certain kind of sermon or through a certain type of person. We make value judgments about, about God only speaking through a person of this gender or of this status or of this level of education. And though God will not be controlled, we, we keep trying. And we find ourselves responding, well, God wouldn't work like that. God couldn't do that. It's too late for that to happen. It's too late for him to change. It's too late for her to turn things around. That's just too much. And it doesn't make any sense. That's not how God works in this world. That's not how God has worked in my life. And our rationalism puts God in a box, limiting what he can do and how he can do it. 
You know, I've noticed a trend that about that kind of thinking that it ought to concern us. That far too often as we move along in our walk with God, we lose the excitement that we once had about what God can and will do. We lose the, the sense of expectancy about the miraculous and about the mysterious ways of God. When we love God, we obey God, we worship God, we pray, we read our Bibles, we, we utilize all the means of grace. But, but we aren't lost in, in wonder, love, and praise like we used to be. And it seems that, that Christians with, with more wealth tend to be less open to all the ways God wants to work than people, Christians with far less wealth. Christians in a, in a higher social class tend to come to God with less expectancy than those in a lower social class. People who've walked with Christ a long time are more tempted to be complacent about what God says than perhaps new Christians. And we all are tempted toward that sense of complacency and putting God into a box. And the paradoxes of Scripture never cease to amaze me. Here's Mary, a, a young, unassuming, religiously naive young girl, who when presented with this challenging request, says, okay. And, and here are the angels, the shepherds, who are, who are crude and, and religiously unconnected laypersons. And they hear the angels' word and they hear the angels singing. And their first response is, let's go see this thing that we've been told. And then here's Zechariah, a member of the clergy, a worship leader in the temple saying, oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure if I can believe this. I think Luke clearly wants us to understand that as Zechariah enters the temple, God has set the stage for something to happen. It's not a coincidence that Zechariah is in the temple that day. That it happens just to be his turn to serve that day. It just happens that his name comes up drawn by lots that day. And it isn't just filler that Luke mentions the people assembled outside praying. I mean, you sort of get the feeling that they're much more ready for a miracle than Zechariah is. He's doing his job. He, he's carrying out his duty, Luke says. And he's very sincere about it. But while he's doing his duty, the people are outside praying. They're ready for something to happen and maybe, maybe it's because he's so wrapped up in doing his work for God that he misses God. And for those of us who've been believers a while, isn't that really the dilemma of Christmas? We've heard it all before. We've read it all before. We've seen it all before. The birth of Christ sort of becomes mundane and ordinary for us. And sometimes it takes an angel to get through to us. You know, God's angels come in a variety of ways. But often his angels come in the form of a person that's new to Christ. Someone with a less sophisticated understanding of Christ. Now, I've been wondering about 
the difference between Mary's question of the angel and Zachariah's question of the angel because they both ask a question, but they don't get the same response. Mary asks, how can this be? And her question seems to mean, I don't understand exactly the logistics of how you're going to do this, Lord. I know you can do it. I just, could you tell me how? And Zachariah seems to ask, I don't believe you're going to do what you say. How can I be sure that you're telling me the truth? Mary's response is a question of logistics. And Zachariah's response is a question really of God's integrity to do what he says. Zechariah asks Lord, or says, Lord, I don't really want to stick my neck out until I have some proof. I need to know definitively that I can trust what you're saying. I mean, this is big, Lord. I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to set Elizabeth up for another fall. I don't want to embarrass myself in front of my neighbors or the other priests. How can I know that what you're saying is really true? And this is the guy, this is from the guy who's been praying for years that God will do what he now says he's going to do. And we live our lives wanting proof. We, we say, I'll believe it when I see it. Some of our most common responses are, really? Are you serious? No way. I don't believe it. And doubt and, and the need for proof is kind of built into our Western culture and psyche. And when someone does stick out their neck for God, we sometimes question their sanity. God told you to go where? Told you to do what? You're sensing God leading you how? And sometimes it's clear from Scripture that what people are saying can't be what God is asking of them. But other times we just are hesitant to believe. And too often it's those of us who've been around God and the church the longest who are quickest to discourage people who feel led in the ways of God to great faith and to take great risks. You know, there is a simplicity of faith in in the responses of Mary and the shepherds that seems to be lacking in Zechariah. It's not that they're simple-minded or unintelligent. They may well be less educated and, and less connected to the temple, but they have a childlike faith that responds to, to God and to his word and to his presence. And you know, it's not unusual that God's angels come to us through the presence of a child through whom God opens our eyes and reawakens us and shakes us out of our mundane stupor. I was reminded of the story that, that I read about two boys who were helping their mother decorate and set out the, the porcelain nativity scene. And she was telling them every place to put all of the characters and, and they put them in there a little sloppily. And so she said, well, that looks good. You're done. Why don't you go play? And of course, as soon as they left the room, she arranged it the way she wanted to. She came back later that evening and happened to glance at this nativity scene and all of the characters in the nativity scene were in a tight circle facing inward. And she, boy, she yelled at them a bit irritated. What, what happened to the, to the nativity scene? What did you do? Why did you change it? And as her sons came in the room, one of them said, because nobody could see Jesus. And sure enough, in the middle of the circle was the baby Jesus. And she said it hit her in a moment that they understood some things that 
she had missed. And we remember that Jesus says, unless you, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Someone has said to understand Christmas in some ways, we have to remain children all the time. It's the humble faith of a child that God desires. And my guess is that the, the more educated we become and the more religious we are and the more we know of God, the more difficult, simple, childlike faith becomes to see and to live. Because the less like a child we want to be. And it doesn't mean that we're better off uneducated or, or irreligious or ignorant of God. It just means that as time goes along, our sensitivity to God can lose its sharpness. Our trust of God can lose its edge. Our humble spirit before God can become so proud. And sometimes, maybe often, God's most productive means of getting through to our pride and our sense of safeness and contentment and doubt is silence. Now, there are only some there are some things you can only learn through silence. And I suspect that one of those things is faith, trust. I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons we struggle to believe God and to hear God is that our lives are so filled with noise and busyness and stuff, particularly at this time of year. The only way God can get our attention, the only way God can get through to us is silence. It's not a coincidence that that the angel's response to Zechariah is silence. Zechariah asks, how can I be sure of this? How can I trust God to do this? I need some proof. And the angel is incredulous. Are you kidding me? He says, I'm Gabriel. I'm, I'm here from God. I'm standing right in front of you. I've told you what God is going to do. You want proof? You want a sign? Okay, I'll give you a sign. For the next nine months, you're going to become very familiar with silence. You know, I, I can sort of relate to this. My, my throat troubles began when I was, I don't know, five or six years old. And I went to specialists through the years who kept saying, oh, you'll, he'll probably outgrow it. But I never did. And so near the end of my senior year of high school, I had surgery on my throat. And to scrape my vocal cords. Of course, they were raw and irritated. And so for an entire week, I wasn't allowed to say anything. Now, that was hard for a week, seven days, not to say anything. I can't imagine nine months. And I had one of those little magic pads, you know, you could write on and peel up the top of it. I don't think Zachariah had one of those. You know, and I... I learned a couple of things. One is that I don't really like silence. And the other is that I, I found a lot of my value and self-worth through using my voice, talking, singing. We don't like silence. We don't know what to do with it. It makes us uncomfortable, and that's why we typically want something going on around us all the time. Talk radio or music or television, something to, to sort of help us keep from being forced to face the truth about ourselves. There's something about the silence that, 
that forces us to come face to face with who we are and with what we believe and with the direction that our life is going. There are only some things that can be learned in silence. Particularly at this time of year, when we're inundated with busyness and noise and distraction, it is hard to hear God speaking without some silence. And maybe this is what Phillips Brooks is trying to communicate when he writes, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. It takes nine months of silence. But Zechariah gets it. You have to give the guy credit. I'm not so sure if at the end of nine months, I would have responded like he did. The first words out of his mouth, praise to God. I'm not so sure that some of us, including me, might not have been upset with God and irritated and bitter about not being able to speak for nine months. But Zachariah's heart comes through. He just needed to be reminded that God is God. He needed to be shaken a little bit. He needed to have his eyes and his ears opened. This Christmas, no matter how short or long you've been walking with God, there is something God wants to say to you. I guarantee it. It will probably be something that challenges your faith, that challenges your sense of propriety, that stretches you to see Him and life in a new way, that asks you to take one more risk for Him. And when he speaks, will you believe and obey and rejoice in his word and in his promise? Let us take a moment of silence to listen to God. Lord, help us hear and see and believe and rejoice 
in you. Amen.